All right, thanks guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. Welcome back to most of you, I'm guessing, but if you're brand new today, welcome to uh, you especially. Glad to have you guys uh, here with us on one of our Sundays, our worship gatherings. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors, and we um, are still in the book of Acts, uh, sermon series-wise, and we'll be through early December, it looks like right now, so it's kind of for your planning purposes. Uh, it's been a long series. It is uh, one of the longer books of the New Testament, and so we're kind of taking our time going through it, but we're picking up speed uh, towards the end here where um, we see a lot of speeches. In fact, Acts itself uh, comprise, is comprised of a lot of speeches and defenses and sermons uh, that, that kind of are pretty expansive, that are you know, more than a couple of verses. And so we've been seeing those kind of throughout the book, but we're going to see a lot more here at the end where the Apostle Paul, one of the main characters in the book, this uh, Christian apostle who used to kill Christians but who is now a church planter and a pastor, uh, around Asia Minor and kind of beyond is arrested and, and tried and so forth. And so uh, today um, we are going to look at him and how he says goodbye to these pastor friends he has in the city of Ephesus. So if you've been here, we've been in Ephesus, kind of planted and parked there for about five weeks. Uh, and so this is kind of the final uh, one of those. And then he's going to leave here and go to uh, Jerusalem after this. And there's a lot more uh, great stuff coming um, but today, that's basically what we're going to do. That's kind of the bird's eye view of what this passage is about. And it's going to feel, probably anyway, very different than almost anything else we've read in Acts so far, tone-wise. And there's reasons for that I'll get into later. Uh, but there are many ways to take a passage like this. If you've read this before, you did ahead of time this week, or you kind of know what's coming. Uh, if you don't, don't worry about it. We'll read it here in full to begin. But if you have, uh, you might have thought this, or you, uh, might have been thinking this as we... As we even just put it up here on the slide. But one thing I'm not going to do is make this a topical sermon on eldership or pastorship, even though that's not wrong to do. Paul says a lot about what the job entails in this passage. I've done, I, and the reason I'm not going to do that, a couple reasons. One is I've done that before, even in recent months. And this text doesn't really address it in full anyway. And so I'd rather preach the gospel as it's housed in a passage about eldership and brotherly love. So we will talk about that. We'll talk about what it means to be a pastor and job description-wise and all of that, um, and brotherly love and what it means to kind of be a part of a church and to be vulnerable with each other. That comes up for sure. But what I'd rather do than talk about them alone is talk about the gospel, like we always do, as though it's housed in a passage about those things. So we'll glean from the latter while not losing sight of the former, which is really what this is all about anyway. So, and by the way, this is a fantastic passage. If you haven't read it before, uh, I encourage you to go back even after this week and just think about it. There are things in this passage that are uh, cornerstone-like in terms of what uh, Christianity is, what the gospel is, Christian thought and Christian living kind of things that are so, so good. They're kind of unique here language-wise, and the rest of the Bible, of course, contribute to the same kinds of ideas, but language-wise, uh, very unique. And so uh, I said first service even, I'd encourage memorization of some of these things, uh, and it'll kind of be obvious what I'm referring to as I read, uh, because they're so instrumental for um, our faith and our churches, and uh, what leadership should go all in on, and what we should be thinking on a daily basis, and even protective type things in terms of what the gospel isn't, and all kinds of great stuff like this. So uh, great, great, great passage um, to, uh, to learn from, uh, as they all have been, but, uh, but this one especially. So Acts 20, uh, 17 to 38. I forgot to change the reference there. Sorry about that. That's last week's passage. Just realized that. I did not realize that for a service. But Acts 20, 17 to 38. Let's read it in full here to begin, and we'll come back and uh, basically look at this from three different angles from a very uh, kind of bird's eye view. So verse 17. Now from Miletus, he, Paul, 
sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life with any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. So I mentioned first service too, before we get into this, this whole week I was just thinking about the end of Return of the King, Lord of the Rings, and how this sounds a lot like that. Did you guys pick up on that as we read? It's like, look, there's... The throne was basically there, and there's a ship, and there's weeping, and there's like, I'm never going to see you again, and there's crying, and they kind of kneel down and all this stuff, and, and there's wizards and elves, and no, just kidding, there's not wizards and elves, but not quite that far. But anyway, um, always got to wonder what Tolkien has in mind when he starts writing this stuff, but anyway. All right, so what we're going to do today is approach this, like I said before, from three angles. If you'd like to look ahead and follow along that way, it's in your, uh, the sermon insert in your worship folder, but um, kind of taking the whole passage and picking up three different lenses as opposed to going verse by verse. It just kind of caters better that way. And so uh, we'll start by looking at Paul's emotion. So I mentioned before, this is a heavy passage. It feels very different from a lot of the other parts of Acts. You probably picked up on that, or maybe you did when we read. Uh, But just to talk about that for a bit, and then ask this question, where is the gospel in that idea? So not just say, well, Paul was crying, and then kind of move on. Uh, but to talk about why is he having this emotion, why is he so vulnerable, why does he care so much, and then to kind of extrapolate from that and to see where the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means the good news of his death and resurrection, kind of is, how it's percolating up from the center uh, to kind of uh, cause a sort of posture that Paul has before these brothers and friends. All right, so 
So as this says here, we'll start this way, that there are moments in Acts, so like I think at Mars Hill in Acts 17, where Paul sounds very philosophical and Athenian contextually, like an evangelist, uh, but this is very different, right? This is Paul not speaking to people who aren't Christians yet, but to Christians. And so uh, maybe you glean this as well, but it sounds a lot like an excerpt from one of his New Testament letters, doesn't it? Like from something from 1 Corinthians or something from the book of Galatians or Ephesians that he wrote later to these very same people. It's a vulnerable expression of his fears and uncertainties. A lot of people call this Paul's last will and testament because he thinks he's going to die in Jerusalem. So it's this kind of final way to say, guys, you have to care about this stuff. You have to preach this kind of stuff. You have to use these words. You have to see your job as primarily these two things. And we'll come to that a little bit later on. So it's mixed with warnings about false teachers and encouragements in ministry leadership and reminders about the gospel. Again, things you see in other parts of his letters that he wrote throughout uh, the New Testament, 13 of which that we have recorded in the New Testament. All mixed with tears, all mixed with expressions of love, deep brotherly love for them to the point where they can cry together and weep together and embrace and kneel in prayer and um, just be vulnerable and real, but then take the gospel really seriously at, at the same time. And so we'll get to some of these kind of uh, expressions of, uh, or these teachings here in, in a little bit. But I just want to park here for a second and ask uh, this, these questions. This, first of all, just kind of highlights some of these very emotive things that we see uh, in, in, this, uh, in this passage. But to ask these questions. So what allows us as Christians to be vulnerable with other believers? Kind of on this level. What allows us to weep with each other and pray with each other and not fear judgment all along and not be a guarded people pleaser? Or to kind of say, and this is a little bit different angle on it, similar, uh, but he uses this language here. Uh, for those of us who teach, how does one teach theology with tears, whether literally or figuratively? How do we teach and, and feel the things that we're teaching and care so deeply for the content and the people that we're teaching that it kind of elicits uh, these, these types of, of feelings and, and actions. The answer, in Paul's case, is he used to kill Christians. Okay, so if we're really asking, like, where is this coming from? And if you know the, how Paul is described in the earlier parts of, or the end of Acts 8, earlier parts of Acts 9, this is a very different guy, right? But the answer to these questions is, in Paul's case, he used to, to kill Christians and tear apart Christian families and imprison them. But Jesus appeared to him on the road and said, I'm the one who died for every single ounce of your murderous actions. I bled for all of them in love for you and then implied, now you're mine. I'm winning you back to the light, away from the darkness through my expression of forgiveness and love. And it shows Grace has just overwhelmed this guy. It's what's, again, bubbling beneath the surface to create this kind of open, vulnerable posture towards other Christians. And in our case, we've, it's the same for us. We've done things that are just as bad. We've sinned grievously against God, all of us. And when we come to understand this and yet see that God's response wasn't to crush us, but to work with his son, Jesus, God the Son, and to plan to allow his son to be crushed in our place, that can't help but eventually, at least, breed humility. And the more we dial up those kinds of thoughts and understand that everything we just talked about in regards to the gospel and how Jesus saved us in a very similar fashion when he appeared on the road of our life and 
and saved us and said to us, I've died for everything you've done. I love you, and now you're mine. You're my son. You're my daughter. We understand that it correlates directly to humility. It correlates directly to vulnerability and love for others who, too, were saved. So like looking at a church family and kind of looking at them through that lens. So groups then in a church, this is kind of a widespread church thing, but groups then in a church, like affinity groups or friendships or families too, I suppose, but uh, community groups, groups then become less about competitiveness and proving ourselves to others because we've already been accepted undeservedly by God and we know it deep down. And so it, it's, it's a safe place to be. It's, it's easier to open up knowing even from other Christians we might not be uh, received as graciously or as we confess or share or be vulnerable or open up, we might not be received as as well as God obviously has for us, but it's a safe place because we know we have that greater thing. It's a safety rope, right, around us. And, and, it, and it affects how we look at others as well. We look at the successes people have, and it just destroys envy. It destroys pride. It destroys jealousy because it's not by works but by grace that we're saved and that we have everything. So we look at other people then who have success or, or gifts in life, uh, and they might be greater than ours, but we look at them with the lens of they just received that. They didn't deserve it, those gifts or that, or that stuff in life, just like they didn't receive or nor I did, did I receive my salvation, but it's been given. And it's just a lot easier then to celebrate with them. And all, again, all under the umbrella that we've been accepted by undeservedly, undeservedly by, by God. And so the, the point here isn't be emotional like Paul and just start crying and more in front of people, darn it, you know? That's, that's not the point. The point is, to Christians of all personality types, even like me and Peter Carlson, who uh, love to just celebrate our phlegmatism together, we have a group. There's two of us in it. I'll, any of you can join if you're phlegmatic. Uh, but we, we love to do that. But anyway, p- people like us too, who tend to hold in emotion, this is what it looks like. Acts 20 and St. Paul in this, this is what it looks like for grace to wreck a person and to rebuild them. And then maybe we think, past the emotional piece, the point is to Christians of all personality types, does faith lead me to talk like this with other believers? Can I truly, vulnerably pray with them? Or maybe this is the biggest one. Can I talk about the gospel? Can I actually talk about Jesus with others on deep levels and it not feel weird? It's very intimate to do. And so if we don't have, aren't kind of equipped and armed with the gospel and with grace, it can feel uncomfortable. And that's actually maybe not the biggest of things because we should still do it anyway, but that might be there as a sign that we're out of practice. And so another way to look at this is we need to laugh with Christians and have that kind of component to Christian community, but also like a light switch, take Jesus extremely seriously at the same time. Community should be, church community should be full of both, where there is vulnerability on both sides, but not just full of like sarcastic humor, even though it's kind of fun, uh, but also, and, and just laughter in general, but also to li- flip that light switch and take Jesus very, very seriously at the same time, where we can actually talk, actually be open, actually confess sin, actually confess fear, and actually just talk about grace together on a deep, deep, deep level. If we can't, again, what's the answer? We have to get over ourselves if we want true Christian friendship. 
And this is true in friendship in general, but if we want true Christian friendship, we have to get over ourselves, and the way to get over ourselves is the gospel, not trying harder. All right? That's the first piece today. All right, then we'll kind of build here uh, into this second component, which is increasingly more important. Uh, but Paul's exhortation, his teaching. And then the same question, where is the gospel here? Primarily looking at verses 26 and 27, but I'll bring in a lot more here too. So if we just start here and, and kind of have this in mind as, as we go, part of what Paul is saying to these young budding leader types in Ephesus is, I didn't hold back anything when I was preaching to you. So this isn't like the main part of what he's saying, but it, it's kind of hard to miss, right? When he, he seems to defend himself. He talks about, you yourselves saw when I was with you, I worked with my hands. I didn't demand anything of like payment for this or anything. I worked with my hands. I helped the weak. You saw how I didn't hold back. And so part of this is Paul. And the reason why he's saying this is he's saying, I didn't hold back anything when I was preaching to you. There's no extra chapter in the book of the gospel that I just forgot. So is he boarding the ship? He's not like, oh, by the way, I forgot the important part. As he goes out of voice range, you know? And they're like, what? You know, by all means, don't ever, ever, ever forget to. And then it kind of, you know, uh, drifts off. It's not, he doesn't, he doesn't have to. It's a conscience thing for him. He knows that he's told them everything. Everything about Jesus, everything about his grace, everything about repentance toward God, everything about faith and the present and coming kingdom of God into the world. The whole council as it says here, multiple times. So if anyone rejects it, he's saying, I'm innocent of their blood. Again, conscience issue for Paul. Paul was not ashamed when he taught of the bloody cross. He centralized, he put a spotlight on it. He didn't just talk about implications of the gospel, but he talked about the gospel itself, the bullseye of the Christian faith. Golgotha, blood, substitution, resurrection, the Holy Spirit, grace over and against works. Grace over and against works. This is his constant message to the church and to those who are not yet Christians. Wherever he went, whatever city, there are different words he put to that, but it was always his message. And we've seen in this series and throughout the book, always the message, the grace of God, the blood of Jesus over and against the good that we have to show forth for our name. And then things like faith and love in the church. In other words, he's saying, I didn't come to offer seminars on Christian ethics for you, but I announced the gospel, I announced the good news, I announced that Jesus was alive, I announced that God suffered for us, I announced that God gave up his one and only son for us on the cross so that through that we might be saved, and you believed. This is another helpful paradigm for Christian living, and for those of, those of us in the church who are leaders here, staff, elders, deacons, leaders of community groups, mentors, people who are just a little further along in the faith and other people that they know, that they're friends with. I mean, this is basic but so rich and so good. Is Are we doing this? Because increasingly in, in a, a dead and dying world in our culture uh, that celebrates people and celebrates the self and celebrates the works of humankind, in, in every form and fashion of the phrase, it, it gets increasingly difficult to de-glorify that and to talk about we're so bad that God had to become human and bleed out on a cross over the span of six hours. And that's the way we're saved. 
it, it's increasingly difficult. And it always has been. This is like against the mantras kind of of our, the religions, the, the mantras, the worldviews of our heart that we're kind of predetermined unto. But it gets increasingly difficult to do. And so it's a question for us. Are we going to follow Paul here or not? It's the right thing to do. Shine the spotlight on the bullseye of the gospel. Are we leaving things out for the sake of it just being too offensive, messy, and celebratory more of God than us? It's just a question we've got to think. All right? Then he moves on and he addresses an elder's job or a pastor's job or an overseer's job, all synonymous terms, directly. Okay, so I put up here a, a mini paragraph, kind of the key part. I'm not going to read all this again for time's sake, but just so it's there. Uh, but basically what Paul is here, he is a pastor to pastors. He's a trainer of pastors. And he's saying there are two main aspects to the role of what it means to be a pastor. And this, for some of you, this is, this is um, within like, your experience. You've seen this here or maybe elsewhere in a different church. Others of you, you haven't seen this done well. Um, but I'll come back to that here. Part of this is just acknowledging we don't either, but we need prayer. But anyway, point is, we, we, see, that we see it here, though, and, and we seek to follow this in as much as the scriptures kind of teach here and get explicit on what does it mean to pastor? What's our job description? There are two main aspects to the role, and again, this is one of the most important things about a church, having a healthy elder team who, as a team, do these two things, and, and they're right here. Care for the church and teach the church. And actually, it's almost one main thing. We kind of reword this a bit here on the bottom. Care for the church and protect the church by teaching untwisted truth and thereby protect the church from false doctrines seductively spewed out by false teachers or wolves. That's what it means to be a pastor. Some of you may, maybe, just as I said that, you might be thinking, I'd like to do that. Maybe you're going to be a pastor someday. Others of you are like, that's not what I thought it meant. There are other things as well. That's basically what he's saying here in his last will and testament, right, to these elders is, remember, this is your job. So for today, this is its own sermon, ton more, tons more to say. In fact, on our, on our SoundCloud account, our website, we have uh, topically, we've, we've addressed this, but um, if you want to go back and listen to that. But for today, elders in the room, be alert. Remember what he says here to us? I'm talking to like two of you, I realize, but just hang with me, the rest of you. <laughs> um, look what it says. Be alert, Mark, and Spence, where's Spence? There we go, two of you, and me. Be alert, right? Watch. Part of what it means to be an overseer is literally that. Be watchful. We need to remember this as pastors and future elders. Some of you will be elders here or elsewhere in the future. Hear this and know this. This is what the job entails. The rest of you, know this and pray for us in this. And just join us in the never-ending battle of guarding against heresy and false teaching and just the never-ending theological fluff that bombards us every day in our social media feeds and in culture and in our own dead and dying hearts. And even subtle, subversive false teaching that might arise, quote, from among your own selves. This is huge. This is like, if you haven't seen this before or know this about like where the threat is, this is massive to understand this for the sake of prayer, for leaders to know this. Uh, not to be shocked if this happens, thinking, oh my gosh, we're so dysfunctional, our church sucks, if this happens. No, actually, this is predicted. This will happen. And so it'd be irresponsible of me to preach this, anybody to preach this, and not mention that threats to Hiawatha Church have, in the past, 
and will in the future come from within the church. Not outside, though there's plenty of like attacks outside as well, uh, from Christian influencers who are not really Christians, but kind of thinking they are, or from um, antagonistic towards the faith people that, that are just kind of doing their thing as well. That's obviously a part of it. But what he's saying is, the wolves will arise from among your own selves. He's saying to these pastors, some of you will fall. Kind of like Jesus said to his disciples, one of you will betray me. To Judas, right? One of you will betray me. See, it happens in David's life in the Old Testament. He had threats from outside, Goliaths, Philistines, and who are the threats inside? His family, his own son, tried to take the throne from him, right? Outside and inside. All this climaxes with Christ. It's outside, it's inside, and it continues on into the New Testament era in the church. He's saying to these pastors, these Ephesian pastors, one of you will stop preaching the gospel. One of you will scratch itching ears because it's easier, it's more palatable to say, well, God didn't really have to die for you, or he bled, but you know what? Just copy that type of mentality in your natural humility that you have within you and just go and so live and replicate it. You'll stop preaching the gospel, he's saying. That will happen and that person will entice people away from the faith. So here as well, that's, that has happened at our church. Uh, it will happen. And an elder's job is to prevent this by the grace of God as much as possible from happening. And when it starts to happen, to call it out. You know, uh, whether they're Christians who are posing, faking it, or whether they're just misguided and immature, but they're still very gregarious and they're drawing people away to false gospels, things that kind of sound true, but are from the pit of hell. God uses pastors to care for the church and feed the church and protect the church doctrinally and with teaching uh, to prevent this from, from happening widespreadly. All right, here's what I really want to do. I want to spend a few more minutes on this exhortation piece um, and talk about how does Paul house the gospel in this encouragement to the elders. So what is he actually teaching them here about Jesus? So when I said before there are components to this that you might even want to consider memorizing and having it that close to your heart, uh, these are a couple of the big ones. Not, this is not everything, but a couple of the big ones here. So verse 28 and verse 32. We'll start with this one. Verse 28. In verse 28, I skipped it, didn't I? There we go. It says, God obtained the church with his own blood. Isn't that fascinating? It doesn't say Jesus spared the church or saved the church or exonerated the church with his own blood, even though that's basically what it means because Jesus is God and he's the one who bled, but it kind of goes right to the core. So we have this picture of the God who made everything, every molecule in the universe is the one who condescended himself and who bled, who suffered. And I know most of you have heard this a billion times in life, but some of you haven't. And to both of you, though, I'll still say to myself, is God suffered for you and me. Have you ever heard that before? Have you forgotten? Do you believe it? God suffered. He experienced real physical and emotional and psychological torment for us, spiritual torment on the cross. And then he moves on to talking about, relatedly, this idea of obtaining. And so, I went back too far there. God obtained. So, the idea that God bled 
is where we start, but then we look at what happened through Jesus' blood. Is he obtained us? So his death was not an afterthought or an accidental martyrdom, a thing we kind of read quickly over and say, well, what's really important is what Jesus taught. That's not how to read the Bible. That's not the most important part. The most important part is when Jesus died because it doesn't say through Jesus' teachings he obtained people. It's not through his lessons, the Sermon on the Mount, that he obtained people. It's through his blood that he obtained people, right? Huge to understand this. Crucial. Memorize this. Call it to mind regularly for yourself and for others you lead and teach and are in community with here. His blood itself actually secured our salvation. It ushered in the forgiveness of God. And, and the fact that obtaining is even part of how we understand the gospel means that God wanted us, right? He got us from somewhere. He acquired us. That means we weren't where he was. We were lost. And he went to find us and acquire us. And the way he did that is through Jesus' shed blood. It accomplished salvation. It was substitution. It was love. He died in our place. So it's not utilitarian for God to do this. There's no utilitarian reason God saves the church. He doesn't need anything from us. He just wants to save us. And by the way, what tense is the verb obtained in here? What tense of the word? Past. Huge. Right? Tense matters. Grammar matters. And bad grammar is linked with bad theology, right? Or kind of flip that around. Like we don't see this and kind of just assume it's actually more in the present or future tense. We, we miss the whole thing. In other words, it doesn't say God will obtain you in the future condition if you live a good life. All other world religions, that's the base, their basic mantra. This, the past tense here, is distinctly Christian. Distinctly Christian. We've already been obtained, which means what for our, for our sake? other than just being good news. No more work. If you've already been obtained, there's nothing else to do. No other work to be done. It's not about turning God's head. It's about believing that he, when we weren't even looking to him, turned to face us to find us and acquire us, to save us, to bring us into his family. The more we understand this, and Paul knows this, that's why he's using this word, he wants to be a model for the church. The more the church preaches this they use the past tense with you have already been saved Ephesians 2 says you've already been seated at the right hand of God spiritually you're already a co-heir you're already a son you're already a daughter you're already in you're already at the table of God your future inheritance is guaranteed the the new earth that, that awaits us all that stuff past tense obtained here is just another shout of this idea no more work to be done it's it's not will obtain it's obtained and it's linked with the blood of Christ all right then verse 32 and now I commend you to God and the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are being washed or sanctified or purified or set apart all right here's the question we'll start with what according to this verse builds us up what's the foundation what are we built on? What encourages? What edifies? What saves? The word of his grace, right, which is Jesus. Not the Ten Commandments nor any kind of ethical center, but Christ's bloody death and the grace we have from him in that. 
Another very important word that links up with this idea, I'll spend a couple more minutes on this, is the idea of inheritance, uh, which is another word for salvation, for being saved, for having the hope of eternal life. It's uh, linked up with this idea in the Bible of um, a new earth coming, where Jesus will come back here and purify everything and make it new and walk with us and be we can see his face and everything will be perfect. There's no more tears or death or crying or shame or any of that as Revelation depicts. Inheritance is linked with uh, that idea. But basically, just to simplify it, it just means it's a word for the gospel or a word for salvation. So why is that such an important word? And where is grace in that idea? The answer is inheritances are never, ever earned, right? Never earned, but they're always given. Inheritances are never earned, but they're given. The whole point to an inheritance is someone else worked for the money, right? Any of you been a recipient of an inheritance before, like from a grandparent or something or, or a parent? They've worked for the money. We just get it because they love us and they want to give it to us. That's why this is so important for us to link our idea of what it means to be saved with inheritance and not paycheck. So if we're undeserving, fortunate recipients under the banner of love, it shapes how we view this whole thing, right? It's, it's the same with the gospel. Again, Paul knows this, and he wants the Ephesian elders to know it and to commend others unto it, to use the language Luke does here. The more we talk about salvation as inheritance and not a paycheck, the less we'll try to earn it, and the more we will understand it. And so this is a great, this is paradigm for Christian ministry. It's something just in the Bible, one for us to be beneficiaries of ourselves. But, but talk in these terms. People are brand new to the Bible with you or, or, and they, they're like, tell me about, like, what's the center? What basically does Christ, do Christians believe? And that's, that's not a bad place to start as we talk in family terms a lot. God is a father, not a benevolent boss. He is uh, an inheritance giver, not a rewarder of good deeds. You know, and this is very different from other religions. And, in fact, inheritance comes up multiple times in the New Testament to get at this idea. Other religions would never use that idea, ever. Inheritance is distinctly Christian. God did all the work on the cross. We just receive. We've done, we do no work. No work. We're sinners. We're dead. We're incapable of doing good at the core. And so we need a generous giver, not a rewarder. All right, third and final here, guys. We'll spend a little bit of time here. Paul's emblematic action. So same question, where's the gospel here? Uh, by the way, I used alliteration today for the first time, I think, ever. Three E's. Do you guys notice that? I wasn't intending to see it. It's just uh, Paul's emotion, his exhortation, and his a little more forced in the third one here. But emblematic action. Um, Anyway, first time I think I've ever done that. Three points alliterated. I feel a little dirty almost doing that. But anyway, um, Paul's emblematic action. So same question. Here's where it starts in Acts 20, verse 22. And now, behold, Paul speaking, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. It starts there, and the strong correlation that that has with how Jesus says, elsewhere in the Gospels, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. He spends all this time in Galilee for three years. Then at one point, he set his face to go to Jerusalem when he didn't have to, knowing that's where I'm going to die. They'll reject me there. I'll die there. And through my death, salvation to the masses. 
And so there's a connection movement-wise and typologically and symbolically between Paul and Jesus. And if you've been here for any amount of time, you've seen us kind of beat this drum over and over again. Some of you are brand new to this. It's a muscle you haven't stretched before. And so um, let me explain it a little bit here as, as we go. But this is where we start, all right? It's, it's about movement. It's about Paul imaging Jesus. But it's not just about that. So it's one thing to see these connections here. And actually, um, there's three kind of ways we see this. One, it's geographically. So Paul goes from a low, lower northern area to the higher southern Jerusalem, like Jesus went from Galilee, the northern area, to Jerusalem, the southern area, which is higher. Chronologically, Paul notes three years with them in ministry before leaving, just like Jesus spent three years in Galilee before Jerusalem. Same identical thing. And also experientially they resemble. Paul is going there knowing he might die. He's going there to be arrested unjustly. He's going there to be tried. He's going there to suffer. Thinking he might die, like Jesus would go and have all those things happen to him, but also that he would die. So it's not just going to a party in Jerusalem like, hey, it's vacation time. They're going with the idea, the knowledge that they will, that they will die. And so with this symbolic framework in place, um, we can widen out a bit. So like I was saying before, it's not just about us saying, wow, that sounds like Jesus, and then that's indirectly now reminding me of the more important movement from a northern area to Jerusalem to suffer. Not Paul's, but Jesus's. It is about that. But with that in place, we can widen out a bit and see that it's also about Paul's words themselves. Something really important to understand about how the Bible reads itself is that Jesus claims the words of others as his own. Jesus claims the words of others as his own. Like, for example, when he quotes David's psalms as though they were his words. Like in Matthew 27, when he cries out Psalm 22.1, he just owns it when he's dying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in Hebrews 10.5, the New Testament authors do this too, and they're theologizing about the Old and the New Testament. When Christ came into the world, he said, and then it's a direct quote of Psalm 46 to 7, which was written a thousand years before him by a different person. There are many instances of this, but these are two great examples of Jesus himself doing this and a New Testament author in the wake of that doing this as well. Now, Jesus is not plagiarizing. He's helping us realize those old words exist for the sake of Christ, the ultimate word of God. They, they help build the story toward its rightful climax. And now that it's here, he claims all words for himself as he wishes because they all really belong to him anyway. And so with that in mind, when, when Paul then says, and we'll see this play out a few times here, when Paul says in verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, you yourselves know that my hands ministered to my necessities. It's emblematic of Jesus saying basically the same thing in Mark 10, 45. I came actually not to be served by you. I was asking things of you, but I came to serve you. How? By giving my life on the cross, by giving my life as a ransom for many sinners who believe in me and be saved through my blood. And so he, Jesus, coveted nothing from us. This is massive in how it pertains to the gospel. Jesus coveted no one's money. Jesus coveted no one's good works. He coveted nothing from humanity that could be considered payment 
for the grace that he was bringing into the world because grace is not something we can buy but given freely through his gruesome death. Isn't that amazing? And when you twist it this way, all of a sudden it's less about something Paul said to some dudes around a campfire 2,000 years ago and all of a sudden it's more about Christ calling out to all of us in this room right right now through this very text saying, people of Hiawatha, I coveted nothing from you. I asked nothing of you as if the whole point of salvation was you doing something for me. I asked nothing in return, but instead I wanted to give you all of myself. My hands doing the thing that saved you. My hands doing all the work, like Paul's doing, his hands are doing all the work here. Jesus calls out to us through that saying, my hands did all the work, not yours. So come receive eternal life. And that's precisely what this is ultimately about, is Christ commandeering these words for himself. This is exactly what he does in his ministry. I coveted nothing from you. And so church, don't live as though that's the case. Let's stop believing that there's something we can pay him back with as though the whole point is tit for tat, like it's conditional. It's not. Christ coveted nothing but instead offered his, his body, his blood, to be received by faith. It's also the uh, same thing in the next section where he talks about helping the weak, where he says, you must do this. Help the weak and be givers more than receivers. So on one level, that's a great thing for Christians to hear because as we live in the shadow of the glorious cross, we can emblematically display it with our actions, right? And so Paul's doing that here. He's encouraging the Ephesian elders as pastors, like Christ figures in a church, to show off the gospel too with their actions. But on a deeper level, he's quoting Jesus directly here anyway, so it's more explicit than implicit anyway. But the idea is, it's more blessed to give than receive because Jesus was a giver, not a receiver. Same thing. Jesus is not a receiver. It's more blessed to give than receive because it was more blessed for Jesus to give his body on that cross than to receive bags of gold and silver at the end of his three years, saying, if you give me enough, you'll be, you'll be saved. Literally or figuratively. That's not how he ends the ministry, right? It ends with his death, giving. And how about this statement here? Verse 24 but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So good, isn't it? Like, I just, again, let me slow down here for a second. On a human level, um, that is, that's offensive. That, that is about the most un-American thing that we can say, right? Like, culturally speaking. That is not what we hear every day. The, 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 the mantra, the, the message, the, the religious thing that we hear from culture every day and from our heart is actually your life is precious. You are the most important thing in your life and you should get whatever you want and don't let anybody tell you how to live your life. Just go your own direction and believe your own things and have your own truth and by all means circle the wagons of your life and and be self-preserving. That's the most important thing. This is the direct opposite, right? I mean, for Paul and for leaders to, to believe this, again, this only comes from the gospel. What can loosen the grip on our life is to get a big view of God that's bigger than ourselves and realize that we did not earn our salvation. 
the more we dial that up, keep, keep, keep dialing that up, the more we do that, the more we can be happy and say this. Paul's not depressed when he's saying this. This is a happy thought. To get outside yourself and to give your life over something bigger than you, that's the way it should be, and that's what Jesus allows. Anyway, so it's just good to think this and to work on this uh, in our Christian brains. At the same time, put that lens down and pick up the Jesus lens again. What if these are written here, not just to encourage us to think similarly, but to remind us that Jesus, as he was going to Jerusalem, also said this in his heart. Because then the gospel is Jesus, Jesus himself, God of all, considered his life not precious. Jesus, the Son of God, considered his life not precious, nor worth saving, nor of any value for the sake of saving us, that he might finish his course. I mean, right as we were in the act of taking selfies and looking out for ourselves and believing this lie that it is about us, it's all about us, right as we're in the act of doing that, trying to get the world, world to revolve around us, the God of the universe is not considering his life precious? I mean, how like beautiful and terrible is that at the same time? How like painfully humbling but amazing is that at the same time? How he calls out to us, people of Hiawatha, I did not consider my life precious or of any value if only that I might finish my work on the cross and give my life for you individually and as, as a church. I mean, that is way better, right, than Paul saying this to the Ephesian elders. Way better, way better news and much more at the core spiritually of what the Bible is trying to say. In fact, to wrap this up, there's two ways we can look at this, and I've kind of been bouncing back and forth. We usually do because both are valid. Um, but in biblical theology, sometimes we talk about this dynamic duality of biblical texts. So there's the human and divine side. But on the first level, we, we look at Acts 20. Maybe we read through it once in its entirety, and we think about ourselves, and we think, Paul's a Christian man, a sinner like me, saved by grace. Um, how can I image some of these things as a leader or not? Like, there's, those are great questions to think about. And we talked about the, the emotiveness, the vulnerability. Where does that come from? And to, and to think about the implicit nature of the gospel in that. Those are great questions to ask. But also, we have to let it speak to us, the Christ, who owns all of these words. They're all his. Who saves us, not from doing or believing these things, because we don't. And that's a whole other spin on this we could spend another half an hour on. We're not going to do that, but we could, we could do that. We could read this passage and say, this is worthy of our time thinking about, but then also say, but none of you, none of us have done this well. How many of us love to give more than receive? And I mean from the heart, like truly. Like very, very few. Like God can create that in the heart. It can be a gift from him, but, but what about all the times that we've loved to receive more than give and we've not done the blessed thing? What about the times we've not cared for the weak, as it says to do here? What about when I just, I'm not vulnerable. I don't have this type of like gospel-motivated emotion with other Christians, and I'm, I live by works. I confess that. I just, I'm, I'm constantly, I'm addicted to works, and I compete with Christians rather than open up to them, and I just can't shake it. What about all that stuff? See, if this is just about us doing what Paul's doing, all of us are screwed. Screwed. 
We have not done it. But that's why I have to flip it over and say, this isn't about you. It's not about me. It's ultimately about Jesus who is whispered, suggested, clearly intentionally in this passage, not just in Paul's movement to Jerusalem to die, but in his words. And so then the ultimate answer is, I'm a sinner, or the statement is I'm a sinner. The kind of response, God's response to that is, Jesus considered his life of no value all the way to the cross so he might die for people who think their life precious. Jesus died for people who think their life more precious than they should. We've self-deified. We've self-worshipped. Jesus was the opposite of that. And the way it presented in history and theology is through his bloody, gruesome death for you and me. That's how much God loves us. And if we believe, we will be saved. Let's pray.